Hello and welcome to Search Snippets, episode 6 for March 30, 2020. Today I'm bringing you just one article from Bill Slorsky, written on the Search Engine Journal. The article is entitled, Author Vectors, Google Knows Who Wrote Which Articles. Posted just, well, nine hours ago my time, or uh, all times. So let's jump into the article. Today I'm going to do something a little bit different where I'm going to probably skim and take the main points of this article out. going to read it to you as normal. Um, Hopefully you're still getting value from that. And then I'm going to provide probably my couple of closing thoughts on it um, because I feel like maybe this is the type of thing where we get a little bit too excited as SEOs and maybe run away with ourselves. In any case, let's get into the article. Author Vectors, Google Knows Who Wrote Which Articles. Uh, Posted on Search Engine Journal blog by Bill Slorsky. Let's jump into this. Does Google care about who created specific content on the web? And do they use that information for purposes such as ranking pages on the web? We can't be certain of that, but Google has filed patents about authors and provided ways for content creators to indicate that they have published something somewhere. So Google's now come out and, and been granted a new patent, and I'll just dive into that in two seconds. Um, the patent's name uh, is called it's called the Website Representation Vectors Patent, um, also sometimes referred to as uh, the Author's Vectors Patent. So, for simplicity's sake, I'm just going to use the patent here as much as possible, uh, just because it can get so wordy in this article. So uh, if you do want to read the full post on this, Bill covers a lot of great history on um, how author representation uh, around text classification has, has progressed from you know, uh, Google trying to do it algorithmically to it now being included in quality rated guidelines, uh, links to other posts around it. Uh, it's quite a diverse topic and there's been a lot of, uh, I guess, small moves by Google to try and do this over the years and it looks like this is just another step in that direction. But I'm going to jump now all the way down to uh, a heading probably about halfway down. This is a new Google patent on author's vectors to understand who wrote what. So here's the meat really of the article. Google was granted a patent this March on the topic of text classification using a neural network approach. The website representation vectors patent, so the patent, described using neural networks to classify websites based upon features found on those sites into different industries and levels of expertise. So it sounds more here that Google is looking to use neural networks to identify um, how people within different industries write content and how different levels of expertise within that industry write the content that they write. Uh, So I suppose that uh, we'll find a bit more out moving forward, but it very much sounds like, you know, novice level people in your industry are going to write about things a certain way versus expert level people who are going to write about things in a different way. So I continue with the article, the author vectors patent. The patent tells us about how it may classify sites and also tells us uh, how neural networks work. So, you know, this is the, the clues, I guess, going into how why this is coming together, why we have this, you know, inkling about that's what it's about so moving on how does a process in this patent work it starts with obtaining a set of sequence of words so that set of sequences of words make up a number of first sequences of words 
For each of those first sequences of words, the second sequence of words follows that first sequence of words. So that might be confusing, but I think maybe this is better off to think about in the context of a sentence. So it starts by obtaining a sentence, even though it's not necessarily saying that, um, easier maybe for us to conceptualize. So it starts by obtaining a sentence, um, and that sentence is then followed by obviously a second sentence. The first sentence or sequence of words and each second sentence or sequence of words can be classified as being authored by a particular author. Uh, so this patent obviously starts out with the neural network identifying, hey, this is this first sentence, this is this first sequence, um, and this looks like, we're gonna say this is written by author A, and we're gonna look at the second one and say this is also written by author A. It says here, a neural network system could be trained on those sets of words to determine an author and an author vector may be used to characterize a particular author, right? So using those two sentences of words, I guess, as a, a, an example, um, it sounds here like Google's going to take those sentences and say, okay, maybe we know specifically that, you know, Bill writes on Search Engine Journal. We know the way that he writes based on these sequences of words. Now, our vector for Bill says that he writes about this topic in this particular way based on how he structures those sentences and words. Uh, moving on, so the patent tells us about the advantages of following the process, processes in this patent. An author vector that may effectively categorize, ca characterize sorry, an author can be generated from a text written by the author without that text being labeled. So again, saying that if they can identify the author from labeled text and the, or sequences of words, they can now start to think about identifying who is the author of certain pieces of a content without that being listed somewhere. So say Bill wrote this blog without putting his name next to it, potentially the vector that they have on Bill eventually will be able to identify that it's a high likelihood that Bill wrote this article. Once generated, the author, okay, sorry, once generated, the author vector can characterize different properties of the author depending on the context of the use of the author vector. So there we go. Uh, by clustering the author vectors, clusters of authors that have similar communication styles and in some implementations, personality types can be effectively generated. Once generated, the author vectors and optionally the clusters can be effectively used for a variety of purposes. So there you go. So not only they're looking to identify the authors and how the authors write both, you know, by using their labeled content and then identifying unlabeled content that authors write online, but they can say, okay, well, this author writes like that author inside of this uh, vertical, this industry potentially, or on this topic and then it can cluster it together groups of people uh, or groups of authors and say, okay, all these authors are, you know, potentially all these authors are uh, authoritative in this vertical. They all write very similar and have similar vectors. This is just some of my speculation. Of course, the patent doesn't explicitly say that in, in as many words, but based on what we've got here, very much sounds like it, that's the case. Uh, so now, um, this, this Bill goes into here, uh, about some examples that he provided above of writing from Thomas Carlyle, Ernest Hemingway, and William Faulkner. Uh, so uh, I haven't covered those here, but please check out the article if you want to see a closer detail to this. But he uses these three people, these three well-known people, of course, um, as a way to demonstrate how their writing styles are very different and how that writing style between those two uh, would make them potentially very identifiable as um, authors even if they were not uh, named next to their work. 
So he says here, in my examples of text above from Thomas Carlyle, Ernest Hemingway, and William Faulkner, it is fairly easy to tell what each has written and what other content that they may write may be like. To agree, that is the point. To a degree, that is the point of this patent. Google can use neural networks to learn about and understand the styles of authors and to be able to tell them apart. The patent tells us, quote, the author vector generated by the author vector system for a given author is a vector of numeric values that characterizes the author. In particular, depending on the context of the use of the author vector, the author vector can characterize one or more of the communication style of the author. The author's personality type, the author's likelihood of selecting certain content, items, and other characteristics of the author. The patent might look at a content written by a particular author that might consist of a sentence, a paragraph, a collection of multiple paragraphs, a search query, another collection of multiple natural language words. So essentially, it can look at anything as long as it knows that those um, words are coming from a specific author, at least at some stage, and then is able to match those vectors up. Uh, so, takeaways regarding this author vectors process. Google has been looking at collecting data about authors who create content. It has also come out with a number of approaches that could, one, generate things such as reputation scores, or two, boost content under an approach such as authorship markup for people who might be connected to other people in a social network, such as Google+. Additionally, Google has been exploring the use of neural networks to develop approaches that might, one, understand the context of words and queries better, two, classify websites better, and three, now understand who the authors of content might be easier. Different authors can have different writing styles and different levels of expertise and interest in different topics. Google is telling us with this new patent on author vectors that they may be able to identify the authors of unlabeled content. Is this new approach one that was uh, has one that has replaced the authorship marker? At least one Google representative was telling us that there was no longer a need for authorship markup and that Google was smart enough to tell who authored what content. That was in 2016. The author vector patent approach was filed in 2018 with the USPTO, see the US Patent Office. We have no idea when it may have been developed. We also aren't quite sure how Google might use author vectors, if ever. But now we know that Google might be better at identifying who the authors of content might be. And that ends the article here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop this and I'm going to go to the next uh, little uh, segment here in, in the podcast and just give you maybe a minute or two of my thoughts on this um, if you're interested at all. If not, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. Okay, so a couple of thoughts about this article. Uh, so... Another, I guess, in, in summation again, Google's going to use uh, sentences or queries or strings of text that it can identify that you have written personally. Potentially, I, I would say search queries are a big, uh, a big one. Anything that you put into uh, Google Drive um, and, and potentially a couple other places. You know, Google's got a quite ver- uh, vast network of of tools and things that you use probably on a daily basis without noticing. You know, Gmail, if you use that's probably a really good one. Um, so they've got all this data to be able to say, okay, if you typed email in, in, in Gmail about potentially this topic based on you know their own search engine algorithms of identifying what content is about now, 
um, they can say, okay, well, you write about that in your email this way, uh, you write about it in Google Docs this way, your queries around it are sort of like this, so we identify that your vector is X. Um, now when you write content on the web, say that you were doing a, a, a bit of a ghostwriting um, project for somebody, or you're writing on a website that you've just started, and it's completely different to your interest, you haven't listed your, uh, your, your personal details, they're able to say, okay, well that vector is very close to this vector, and more than likely then that's, you know, Patrick has written that, Bill has written this, you know, Sarah has written that. So they can put this together and, and, and I guess, uh, come out with some kind of idea of who the individual who wrote it was. Uh, personally, I, I, I don't have any faith in it. Um, that's my opinion. I think that there are differences in writing styles, uh, but I very highly doubt that the differences in writing styles are significant enough uh, on a regular basis to identify individual people at any scale. Uh, I think that to be able to scan the entire web and say that I wrote an article because it's on a website based out of maybe Turkey, a blog post there, um, and then base that on my Google Docs history or search history or Gmail, etc., I think is, it's a fantasy. I really think it's a fantasy. I don't believe that there is enough differentiation between the way that I write a sentence and you write a sentence to the way another two billion people on the planet write a sentence. I just don't think it's possible. That being said, my opinion is that this is definitely something that may be rolled out or at least used in some part by Google to identify types of people or expertise levels of content. I think that's very highly likely. I think it's very highly likely if they may, if they are able to make this work, uh, if they are able to, to uh, really get actionable good data out of this, this will be heavily influencing things like uh, YMYL sites, so your money, your life sites, um, you know, roll that into the, you know, some type of a medic update, absolutely, especially around this time of, you know, COVID-19 and all those sorts of things, you're going to get much stricter, I believe, even more strict than what Google has been in the past around the way that they treat uh, topics and, and content around health, especially. Um, but I also think, you know, wellness and, and finance and all those things will become more strict. There's already been massive amounts of conversation around misinformation online based on the COVID-19 pandemic, etc., etc. If Google is able to use this to classify not just expertise levels within an industry, but also personality types, uh, that specifically might be of some data and of some use. Um, having said that, this is 2016. I'm not very confident that that is something that is real outside of maybe expertise levels. I think expertise levels is probably one of the simplest ones out of, if I had to pick one way for this to classify, I think it's going to be the simplest. Um, and I think if this was rolled out anywhere at all, I think um, the most likely update pro probably was the update that came about recently with Google's, um, Google's update of their algorithm behind identifying 
uh, strings of text and stuff, etc. I've lost the name of that update right now. Uh, I may have to put it in the show notes. Uh, but that update uh, was around September last year came out and said that you know Google's much better at reading and understanding an entire page of content now and how that page has context you know, how certain paragraphs in that page has context a lot of that neural network uh, conversation around that seems very close to what we're talking about here but um, you know the context of expertise levels and and identifying authors at the time wasn't at the forefront of that conversation i believe that if this is live it's live now within that uh, otherwise it's not live at all and and we may see some other iteration iteration in the future anyway that's all for today i hope that this gave some value to you i hope you enjoyed it and, and liked the new format i personally enjoy this format more than i have just reading things to you so far um, if you're a listener of the show, please uh, jump on Twitter. You can tweet me at PatrickHerbert0. Uh, so zero, not O, but uh, just zero. Um, open to any and all feedback. I really appreciate you if you are listening. Uh, thank you so much, and I will speak to you soon. This is episode 7 of SEO Snippets for March 31st, 2020. Two articles for you today. Uh, The first one is, No one's buying your product now. What should your growth team do? By Barbara Galiza. And number two, Google Discover. An image could be worth 1,000 clicks. A case study by Brody Clark. Let's get into the posts. Article 1. No one's buying your product now. What should your growth team do? By Barbara Galiza. It's posted on medium.com. Let's jump in. My local bakery has a one-week wait queue for sourdough, but I'm assuming you're not seeing the same demand for your product now. If you are, e.g. Slack's Q1 earnings, then it's clear what your growth team should focus on. Onboarding and activation. Here are five activities that acquisition growth and performance marketers can work on during pandemic times. Number one, acquire cheap leads through performance marketing. CPMs could reach an all-time low during this pandemic. This research from performance agency Nest says global CPMs, that's cost per thousand, for e-commerce have already dropped by 50%. If you rely on outbound sales, this is actually a great time to invest in lead generation campaigns. Use gated content that's extremely relevant for times like these, e.g. this blog post. People are hungry for information and if you can provide them with valuable knowledge at difficult times, you will see the uptick in your click-through rates. You're likely to pay half price for a lead and most importantly, you're helping your audience out with your expertise. Number two, execute on evergreen initiatives like SEO. Invest in SEO today. See the results six months down the road. Well, like they say, no no day but today. If you're a product-led growth company, you already know how it is. Focus your acquisition strategy on scalable activities that bring you compound growth. That's SEO. Start building a library of content, define your topics, your audience, create cluster pages, review your meta titles and descriptions. 
Number three, optimize your funnel. Disclaimer, this should never be a break in case of pandemic activity. If you're not constantly optimizing your registration, activation, reactivation, and forgot password flows, you're likely missing out on some big wins. How big of a win? I did data modeling research for a B2B SaaS startup, and this is what I saw. Quote, an increase in visitor to trial conversion by a 1% point would lead to a 30% increase in ARR two years down the road. How's that possible? It's top, it's top of funnel, a small increase there trickles all the way down. This company mostly grew organically through word of mouth, but most importantly, through being discovered in the wild. The more companies use their product, the more companies they would acquire. This means a funnel improvement that would lead to one additional trial in day one would mean that by day 730, they would have three additional paying customers. Point four, refresh your retargeting and branded search campaigns creatives. Let's assume that with this pandemic, the need for your product has decreased. People are not Googling for the problem you're solving. Prospects don't want to talk to you on the phone. Realistically, who can you convert? Those that were already considering buying your product. Give your retargeting fresh assets and maybe throw in a special offer. This is also a good opportunity to remind them of the value of your product. A webinar or article could do a great job here. And last but not least, point five here, we have review your attribution and taxonomy. Story time. I wrote over 20 white pages on performance marketing data for a big tech. These topics were for CPM trends, post GDPR, and targeting accuracy for certain exclusion audiences. For each white paper, I spent around 80% time on research and 20% writing. Out of the research time, 20 to 30% would be reviewing and fixing the campaign naming conventions. If you don't have a naming convention or if your naming convention has errors, you're limiting what you can learn with your data or worse, you're basing your decisions on incorrect information. You should have a defined taxonomy for all of these. Your Google Analytics or Heap or Mixpanel, etc. Uh, your UTM tags and your performance campaigns. This is the most common mistake I see at startups when it comes to data. They will implement multiple analytics tools, even Hotjar, but they don't define a naming convention. A lot of the data is often rendered useless because of this. And that ends the article here, but a couple of points, let's reiterate there. Uh, so we saw that Barbara is saying that we should, number one, uh, look at our CPM marketing. So if you're spending money on, on Google AdWords or potentially even Facebook, you know, you're paying cost per thousand impressions. Right now, cost per thousand impressions, at least in e-commerce, have half, so at a 50% discount. People are pulling in their marketing budget. If you've got the budget right now to reposition yourself or to continue to press your advantage, now is the time to get double the amount of impressions, double the amount of eyeballs on your uh, brand, on your advertisements than you would normally. Number two, SEO. Again, DD, double down. Uh, she's saying here that, you know, being able to build and construct your, your um, web presence right now while everybody's busy writing about coronavirus and things like that, you should be doubling down on your SEO and your content marketing for uh, articles that are related to your business and your industry. You won't see any feedback from this immediately, but 
Now's the time to start doing it and publishing it and reaping the rewards later. Number three is squeeze your funnel. Make sure you've looked at the optimization of your funnel from the start to the end and make sure you're squeezing out as much optimization as you can, as much conversions as you can. Get your signups and your, your product buys or you know your, your Zoom meetings, whatever it is for you. Make sure you squeeze people into that next stage and continue to optimize that now. If you can't bring more people, if, if your industry is not um, very, uh, productive right now there's not a lot of people looking for you the least you can do is make sure the people that are coming to you are really moving on to that next step number four refresh your retargeting people have already seen you uh, maybe you did try and squeeze them in that funnel but they just haven't got there yet now's the time to refresh your retargeting and you know double that up with point one retargeting is generally cost per thousand right you can use that half price to hit more people with your retargeting, hit more people for half the price, hit more people more often potentially, you know, uh, increase your limits from two to four ads per day per person. And number five is review, review taxonomies. This probably won't drive anything for you immediately either. I, in my opinion, the best thing you can do with reviewing this is make sure you do it, make sure you've got a convention. You may squeeze some extra um, learnings out of this if you do review this now, but if you don't have this in place, setting it up now means that you're always going to make better decisions in the long run, which obviously we all want to do. That being said, again, that was Baba Galiza. Uh, on her medium blog uh, if you do a google search you can find that i will put the link in the show notes let's move on all right let's jump into article two here this one's going to be a bit of a lengthy one with a few bits and pieces i'm going to have to describe for you so stick with me here i believe it's well worth it in the end Google Discover, an image could be worth 1,000 clicks. A case study by Brody Clark. Uh, this was posted on March 19, uh, but it's so relevant, I believe, and so underutilized in SEO that we should be digging into this more. And people like Brody are definitely on the forefront of what we should all be doing, uh, looking into this and making sure that we're optimizing our websites for Google Discover. Jumping into the article, Google Discover has been visible on the homepage of Search since September 2018. It's also available in the Google app on Android and when you swipe right on the home screen of some devices. I personally have a Google Pixel 2. Uh, swiping right, I believe it's left actually, uh, shows Google Discover. I didn't realize how much I do that until recently. Once you get bored with Twitter or Reddit or Facebook or whatever, sometimes you pick it up and you'll swipe and it's surprising how long you'll spend there. Uh, I encourage you to just check that out yourself. Um, but moving on, reporting of discovery traffic only became available within Google Search Console six months after launch, making the traffic source still feel in its infancy. I'm a consultant and get to work on some pretty exciting projects from time to time, many of which have a component that involves strategizing around Google Discover. For some clients I work with, the sheer volume of Discover versus web traffic is startling. It's not unheard of, dependent on the industry, to have 80% of traffic being discovered with only 20% being from web search. We've also learned that there is a connection between core updates and discover, the algorithm which powers search, proving to have more similarities than what was once thought. For this reason, Google has said not to rely on discover as a traffic source. 
Now we get to more of the meat of the post. We talk about the bizarre world of Google Discover. I wanted to start by pointing out how truly bizarre the SEO world has become for some online businesses. For one client that I work with, here's what Discover looks like for a single article they published. And here he's got a graphic from uh, Google Search Console where you can see day one of publishing the article was about 25th of July last year. You can see day one they have a spike of almost 15,000 clicks in traffic, um, which tends to drop off very rapidly within a three-day period. By day three, uh, 27th of July, 2019 we see that we're under 5,000 clicks in traffic uh, I would say we're probably looking at about 2,000 clicks so day one 14,000 ish clicks day three 2,000 so it's a huge spike on a very new article Brody says that's a pretty common situation too you rarely see an article last longer than three days in discover resulting in a significant and temporary uptick in clicks and impressions so this particular article received 21.7 thousand clicks and 130 thousand impressions with an average click-through rate of 16.7% in just three days. But surely you might be asking that the article must be receiving big numbers via web search as well. Well, Grody's looked at this as well and he says here that uh, with a nice little graphic as well, also from uh, Google Search Console, you can see that uh, the data for the same post has, a, on the publish day, we see from Google search, 24 clicks in total. Uh, we see that drop off very significantly, pretty much immediately. I would say maybe a two-day period. Uh, this is a little bit more zoomed out, so it's much harder to tell. Uh, but we see it zoom out very quickly to receiving less than eight clicks a day. Now, uh, it says here that the total uh, amount of clicks from the time period of that being posted in July until uh, the end of December last year was 353 clicks for 15.3 thousand impressions. So Brody goes on to say, so in Discover the article received 21.7K clicks in three days versus 353 clicks in web search over a full lifetime. That's 61 times more clicks via Discover compared to web search. Let me repeat that again. 61 times more clicks via Discover because you're more discoverable there. Obviously, given the name. <laughs> this kind of makes sense considering the popularity of Google Discover, but this is technically an SEO channel, hence being in Google Search Console. But what control do we have over the traffic source? You could easily say we have very little control. But I believe as SEO professionals, we do have some control. So let's first look at a case study. Now I won't read this case study for you out end to end, I'm just gonna try and skim this as well. So case study, how my SEO blog ended up in Google's Discover feed. For any site that I've worked with, what is looking to, uh, that is looking to receive Discover traffic, I find there to be, always be that breakthrough article that makes them more likely to be considered for future pieces of content. Brody talks about in this section his piece of breakthrough content, which was a piece of content he produced uh, very quickly, I believe, in an afternoon around FAQ schema and implementation of that. Um, so you can see here, he shows us a graphic of his website traffic uh, over the past couple of months. So it looks like about the beginning of January to more or less uh, middle of March, about when this was written, I would say. You can see here that he's 
pretty much averaging less than 500 sessions per uh, month here. No, sorry. I would say it's probably about, let's give it a round number and say a thousand impressions he received in January. His big break for discovery here seems to have happened uh, in March when he posted that, around about the beginning of March, end of Feb, and we can see that uh, the, the highest peak of sessions that he had prior to that was 250. Posting that article, he got a bump up of about uh, almost, a not a thousand quite. Uh, looks like here we're about 800, 700. Um, managed to receive 482 clicks for that article um, from 4.9 thousand impressions over three days. So 482, 4.9, roughly 10% click-through rate because he was featured in Discover. Uh, so an extra 400 clicks um, over three days just from posting and getting featured in Discover. Uh, the important part of this section here, we're gonna dig into the Google's documentation for Discover. So um, within Google's documentation for Discover, which I'd highly recommend reading, it states the importance of using high quality imagery in your content with six references to images. A summary of the main references include, one, use high quality images in your content. Two, make sure your images are large instead of thumbnails. Three, aim to have images that are at least 1200 pixels wide. And four, ensure Google has rights to display your images, either by using AMP or filling out a linked form in this article, which you can find obviously in the show notes. So it's very important to note here that Brody, when he posted this, posted his, um, his article with a very uh, eye-catching image, right? Uh, so he says here, I put this article together myself. I'm no graphic designer. With a screenshot of Google search results along with a person breaking through the page with the Google logo on their face. But there's more to this image than just slapping on the page. The image used in my client's article that received 21.7k clicks supports this idea too. All of the criteria from my research and Google's recommendations were being satisfied in that scenario. The CTR for that article was 16.7%. I find that the CTR for Discover content is generally closer to the 8% CTR mark. So if that CTR was applied to the 130,000 impressions, assuming they were to stay the same, that would mean the images contributing factor delivered 10,000 additional clicks to his client. Including what I can see from his graph above here is probably around about 400, uh, 500 extra clicks to him as well. So he goes into then uh, how to create killer Google discovery worthy imagery. Uh, so I'm gonna brush through this as well. Number one, as a starting point, you wanna make sure that your image sizing is on point. Make sure your featured image and open graph image is 1600 by 840 pixels. If you don't start there, you're missing a big opportunity. Now, we haven't talked about open graph yet, but I'm about to get into this for you. Twitter is my platform of choice when sharing posts. I seem to get a, he seems to get a lot more clicks. So I always use their card validator tool before I share anything to make sure there are no issues. LinkedIn and Facebook also have their own versions of this tool. So if you haven't used this before, uh, you've probably seen it when you share an image on Facebook or, or Twitter and stuff, you get that little extra bit of info underneath um, 
underneath your link that shows the the image and the uh, the the text there as well. So Brody's saying here, make sure you run through your images for each one of your posts through this card validator tool to make sure that that shows up and shows uh, well, because that's likely going to be carried forward into Google Discovery. Um, he says here also, whenever I create feature images, very important for Discover, I tend to aim to make sure that important elements are centered. This is on the off chance that Google uses the image as the thumbnail in search, which does happen regularly. So point two there, make sure that when you create these images uh, of that size, so 1600 by 840, uh, make sure that you center the main features in the image so that you don't get anything cropped or cut out or compressed in a way that makes it unreadable. Um, moving on, on the subject of thumbnails, I've done various tests where I've altered only the open graph image on a page and Google has used that instead of a lower quality image that's visible on the page itself that has alt text and various supporting content. Again, open graph image is important. So again, here he's saying, make sure you, uh, make sure you run your image through that open graph, make sure you use an open graph image because it's very likely that if Google doesn't like your main featured image uh, and the sizing, it's going to use your open graph. Final words on getting discovered and wrap it up here. Images in general are important, but everything else is also important too, like the headline used, the content of the article, where it's published, and various signals around the web to show that it's a worthy post. But if you don't have a strong image to support your article, I'm a firm believer that in a lot of cases, you could be missing out on hundreds or thousands of clicks. Think of the CTR implications of imagery in a feed like Google Discover where imagery takes up so much space and correct sizing takes up even more. When you're developing your next piece of written content, think to yourself, what can I do to make my feature image more attractive to Google Discover? Okay, that was a long one, but to wrap it up here, let me cover off the main points for you so you can get this in your head and think about this. Uh, maybe go into your blog today uh, or post something today and run this through yourself. So the main points are to be featured in Google's uh, Discover from the case studies that we've seen here, we need to make sure that we're optimizing the, the images for the articles that we're posting. There are many other factors, but that is extremely important. On the note of images, here's the main points. Number one, HQ images. So make sure you use high quality images. Uh, unique images, preferably uh, professionally designed also. You don't want to be featured in Discover and then have your image um, you know, not look so good. You don't want to have you know, a grainy picture or photograph you've taken on a mobile phone if you can avoid it. Uh, make sure that you've got sizing correct. So 1600 by 840 where possible. Google does limit uh, list, sorry, 1,200 pixels wide for its uh, images, so you may have a bit more room there to go under if you have to. Now, number two, make sure Google has the right to publish your images. So if you're not using AMP or if you don't see your images, you know, showing up, maybe you've no index some of them. Um, make sure that Google can post them. If you're still not sure, you can find this, uh, the link to this article in the show notes and you can go there and make sure you uh, complete the Google form. Number three, center the main elements of your image. So, you know, it's great to have a big header image and whatever, and that may look good on your website or Facebook feed or whatever you're, you're looking at, but for 
uh, Google Discover, and probably for sharing on Facebook if it's not a header image, etc. Make sure you center the main elements so that nothing gets cropped out. Uh, that also applies for thumbnails in search too, which is happening more often. Uh, and number four, the point here is use card validator for open graph. So use a card validator or open graph validator from Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, you can probably do a quick Google search to find those. If not, again, there are links to those in this article. And that's it. I hope that helped you. Uh, there's some clear, actionable points there. Um, on the first post, definitely go through and look at your, your funnel. Um, look at your CPM marketing as well. See how you can update and, and uh, push more people through your site. And if you want to try a little trick and get uh, put on Discover, go and assess the images that are on your site. Assess them before you put them up now on your blog and see if you can get yourself featured there. That's all I have for you today. Thank you for listening. A uh, much longer episode than I intend to have in future. Uh, again, uh, and as always, please subscribe. If you do have feedback for me, you can find me on Twitter at Patrick Herbert, H-E-R-B-E-R-T, zero. All one word, no spaces, dashes, dots, anything. Uh, I'm so open to your feedback. Um, thank you again for listening and goodbye.